0: Welcome to the conversation on the TYT Network. Tonight, we're gonna talk to an angel. Um, I've told you a little bit about her um, in regards to my run in the 25th District for Congress. I ran into uh, Ruth Sanchez, uh, who helps people and is more decent than maybe anyone I've ever met. Uh, And I wanted to make sure that you guys met her too. So uh, Ruth is the Antelope Valley Chapter President for the ACLU, but she's a lot more than that. Ruth Sanchez, welcome to the Young Turks.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, no problem. Thanks for coming. Uh, Thanks for all the hard work that you do. Uh, So first, uh, I want to talk about your advocacy for the homeless. So I've seen you uh, feed the homeless all over the Antelope Valley. For those unfamiliar with the L.A. area, uh, that's the high desert, which, yes, believe it or not, is in L.A. county. That's Palmdale, Lancaster, uh, that area. Uh, I've seen you give them food. I've seen you give them shelter. I've seen you give them your phone number to call at any time, which is, it just, it rocked my world. Um, but so first explain to me how your role at the ACLU leads you to doing all this wonderful work with the homes.
1: Well, um, I was advocating for about seven years, five years before I founded the ACLU Antelope Valley Chapter and I saw a lot of different things that were happening and I needed assistance. Obviously, I have been with the ACLU now going on 12 years, uh, SoCal ACLU, and I figure, you know what, it's time, um, it's time to bring it to the Antelope Valley. We had a high, uh, I had issues with uh, law enforcement and we had the Antelope Valley just was just found guilty of um, racial profiling. So we knew we had an issue and I decided to bring it to the Antelope Valley and just spread from there. And it was just more than just uh, when you think of the ACLU, you think that it's everything is legal. We got to sue somebody, but there's a lot more. Our chapter does a lot more advocacy, education, um, outreach, and we actually do services.
0: Yeah. And so, look, uh, I ideologically agree with the ACLU probably ninety percent of the time. There is actually some uh, disagreement philosophically, but it's folks like you who give the ACLU a good name. Uh, so when they see you out in the na- in neighborhoods and the communities doing all this wonderful work, and they associate that with the ACLU, uh, I think that is invaluable. But let- let's talk about uh, the homeless a little bit more. Both. Um, what I saw you do with my own eyes, uh, but also, uh, will in a second, we'll get to what you need help with uh, today, because uh, with coronavirus there must be massive issues. So, uh, in in this particular case, Lancaster has uh, that city in it is a uniquely problematic in the case of the homeless, and and that's where you took me to a homeless encampment in the desert where uh, during the winter it's freezing, and obviously during the summer it's scorching hot. uh, And it was one of the most moving things I've ever been a part of. So Ruth, why are they in the desert?
1: Well, the reason being is a lot of the homeless, they tend to gravitate to Lancaster because that's where the resources are. Palmdale has pretty much washed their hands and say, we don't have a homeless issue, but that's not true is just the fact that we don't have services in Palmdale. The services, the few services they are, they're in Lancaster. And they were driven into the desert because the mayor of Lancaster doesn't want them in the city of Lancaster because it doesn't look good for development and whatever else, you know? So they drive them five miles into the desert, into county um, land, So it makes it even difficult because they don't have vehicles to get to these places. And I always say homelessness in the high desert is a lot different than homelessness in uh, in L.A. You know, you're in L.A., you have a gas station in every corner to use the bathroom, to get a glass of water. Not here in the Antelope Valley, as you saw, there isn't. Um, There is a lot of, um, you know, they have to walk. And if we don't take their services to them, sometimes they don't eat.
0: Yeah, um, and and so what was the policy that drove them out though uh, past the the district line, if you will, or the the city line? Um, because I know that the the mayor in Lancaster has said some awful things about the homeless. Uh, he said uh, it should basically be illegal to try to, to give them food. Uh, and I think that's probably what Jesus would have done. You know, arrest anyone trying to help the needy. Uh, Rex Paris, of course, Republican. Uh, He said to carry weapons uh, in case you run into the homeless, which is (laughs) beyond imagination. Anyway, but why are they outside the city limits then, the ones that are in the the desert encampments?
1: Because they're left alone, um, because the city of uh, Lancaster doesn't have a reach on them. So not only that, of course, when the count comes, they say, oh, we don't have that many uh, homeless individuals. But of course, that is not true. Um, So is the city, the city that is pushing them out. um, They have a, a new task force, law enforcement that, you know, pushes them, they red tag them, they give them a red tag for 14 days, and then they come with bulldozers. And they literally bulldoze things. And actually, in Lancaster, when they were bulldozing one of the tents, there was a gentleman inside that tent.
0: Jesus Christ. So, Ruth, I- I've seen you give your number to, to uh, homeless folks. Um, so do they call? And, and what do they call about?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, my phone doesn't stop ringing. And the reason why I give them to them is because how am I going to do advocacy if they cannot reach me? You know, and I mean, my number, I give them to them so that they can call. They'll call for Uh, They need water. They need food. You know, a couple of the individuals that you got to meet, as you see, I have a relationship with them. So they will call me and say, Ruth, we have no food. We have no heat, you know, and it's it's really cold. So that's when not just myself and as much as I would like to take credit for everything. I have a really good team and the community, as you saw, um, they come together. I mean, you know, they come together, 75 people, or whatever. They come together and they help me. We are able to take them blankets, clothing. Um, I actually had one of my volunteers take off her shoes and hand it to the lady because she needed shoes. So, um, yeah. you know, that's just the way so, I feel we need to do advocacy.
0: So, Ruth, I saw your, your team is wonderful. Uh, but but you are their leader and, and you and you lead by example. Uh, you know, if we had a functioning democracy, uh, it wouldn't be me or Christy or any of the Republicans running for office. You'd be our representative. Uh, that's, that's the way that it should work. Uh, but uh, before we get on to the current problems, which we got to get to real quick, uh, is there a way that folks can help? Um, is there Where would you direct them if they wanted to help in this situation?
1: Uh, definitely. Um, I would go ahead and I know that you're going to hate me for it, but give me a call. I don't have a problem. My number is all over the place. Um, Twitter, uh, my Twitter account, Ruth Sanchez. Um, my cell phone number, six six one two zero two four nine one two. 4912 I don't ask for money, but what they could do is they can go ahead and send the items to um, an address that I can provide once they called. And we take all of these items to the people. You know, doesn't get store. Um, that's just part of the group that we do because our advocacy even goes further to the deporter veterans and TJ. So, you know, um, right now we're in need of, um, uh, warm clothes, the heat, you know, the heat's coming up. So we need hats, backpacks, uh, shoes are always in need, socks, uh, food. So yep. you can always just send any of that.
0: So Ruth, uh, what are the current, uh, problems that the homeless are facing uh in the middle of coronavirus
1: well right now because before they you know we had to kind of uh cover what the um, agencies were lacking the county and the city we had to come in and kind of take over on the and cover the you know the gaps well right now we're not able to cook so what we're doing is curb drop off we drop off a bag with goodies and we call and say, hey, pick up your bag, and it's there. A lot of individuals um, are not able to eat because these places are only serving meals twice a week. And I'm sorry, but can we, you know, can we survive with two days a week? With That's only four meals and for seven days. Uh, the showers, they don't have access to bathroom. Mind you, they did drop off seven washing stations that are not maintained. So... No bathroom, no porta potties. The bathrooms in the parks are closed. So, where are they supposed to relieve themselves? So, it is making it harder because organizations such as ourselves or community leaders like myself, we're not able to go into the desert and do what we want to do. So, we have to do kind of a drive by drop off, uh, but we're still servicing them. I mean, the calls are still coming in.
0: Yeah. While everyone else is afraid to go outside, uh, you guys are going out and uh, providing needed relief uh, for the homeless. And you know, we didn't get to touch on all the other work that you do. But I saw you again with my own eyes uh, every weekend day, every off day. Uh, you'd go and drive someone else somewhere else to do uh, to help other people and to organize communities. Uh, Ruth Sanchez, you are the best of us, and uh, it was an honor to meet you in the campaign. And I hope we have you back on uh, to discuss any other drives uh, that you're doing to help folks in the community.
1: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure meeting you. Um, Obviously, while you were here, people fell in love with you. Uh, The way you treated the homeless individuals, they love you. And, you know, you, you're you one of us now, so if you decide to come by, definitely, you know, you have a place here in the Antelope Valley.
0: Absolutely. Guaranteed. All right. Thank you, Ruth.
1: Thank you. All
0: right. Welcome to the conversation on the TYT Network. Um, we're all shut inside because of the coronavirus situation, obviously. And a lot of folks are watching Netflix. Makes sense. So am I. Uh, If you are, you should really should check out this show called The Innocence Files. Uh, The reason it's called that is because they're working with the Innocence Project uh, and showing you different folks who were going to be executed. But it turns out they didn't do it. uh, And they have been released. So they are incredible stories, compelling stories with compelling filmmakers. Almost everybody uh, that worked on this project has won some sort of award, uh, and that includes our next guest. Andy Grieve is the Emmy Award-winning director, and he uh, directed episode eight, uh, which is called Hidden Alibi. Uh, Andy, welcome to the Young Turks, brother. Thank you so much for having
2: me. No No problem. problem.
0: So uh, tell us who the subject of uh, Hidden Alibi is.
2: So it's the story of Alfred Dwayne Brown, who was convicted of a... 2003, murder of a police officer at a uh, check cashing in Houston, Texas. And from the day he was arrested, proclaimed his innocence, had a very solid alibi. Uh, The trial took two years, and he was ultimately convicted of murder of a police officer, who, who was the first responder who showed up on the scene of the crime. And he was sentenced to death row in Texas. That's a pretty easy thing to have happen to you when you're a minority. And uh, he really had basically from the second he was arrested, he had no fighting chance because of all the systematic things that were stacked up against him. Um, and yeah. luckily he found some great advocates and, and lawyers who eventually fought his case and uh, he found his way out of jail. I'm, I'm reluctant to give away too much of the story because it's, it's such a wild story how it played out. Um, yeah,
0: I hear you. I mean, it is a show, and it would be a spoiler alert in a sense. Right, but, right. But, but we do, I do want to discuss some of the details because they're yeah. they they're just they're important to the national conversation. Right. And uh, and it, good to hear that the lawyers do good work. Uh, they really do. <laughs> they get they get a bad rap, and of course, it depends sure. on. The whole part. Yeah, but um, in, in this case, um, why did they think it was? Uh, Alfred in the
2: first place if they ever thought that basically it was just word of mouth like some people there was a housing project called the villa americana that he was he didn't live there at the time but he had a girlfriend that lived around there and he you know he was basically a scene a player in that scene and he was also an easy person to you know sort of frame for this murder because he wasn't from houston he was originally from louisiana and he was a bit of a fish out of water and he was a little bit you know not as street savvy as some of the other guys and his name kind of came up and as soon as that happened the cops just were all over that and he, he just he kept he just it just it just steamrolled in, in in every possible way against him but there was no dna there was no fingerprints there was no eyewitness putting him at the scene i mean there's just nothing that you would see in a traditionally in a case that would put someone on death row
0: well, I'm, I'm glad they gave him the yeah the death penalty on that. It's unreal. What they <laughs> it's do. crazy. Um, yeah, I mean, it, this is from 2005. It's not like this is from 1965. <laughs> no. I mean, it's it's like a stereotype. Oh, the guy who that stranger from out of town. Let's frame right. him. <clears throat> uh, right. He must be the
2: dangerous one. Uh, and the people who they who they decided to believe were highly irreputable. You know, there was there was not a lot of good eyewitnesses or even anecdotal accounts of where he might have been that morning. It was just worse than hearsay, you know.
0: It's also amazing to me that they don't actually want to solve the case of a person who shot a cop. Like, don't you want to no. catch that
2: actual guy? Well, that's the thing. They they just, and, and to, I mean, to this day, unfortunately, the people in the police community in, in Houston are still holding on to that. And, and so just it was so emotionally charged that this guy who was you know, almost ready to retire, he <clears throat> showed up to the scene and this awful tragic thing happened to him. And they wanted so bad to have you know, a, 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 someone who committed that crime more than they wanted the truth. And they were let, they let that go on for over a decade. You know? and, to, and to this day, full justice has not fully been served for Dwayne, which is just unbelievable.
0: Just a quick aside here, because justice matters on both fronts. Did they ever catch the
2: real guy who did it? No, and they haven't really even looked for him. And, and there's bits of evidence. I mean, we couldn't go into all this in the show because of the runtime. But there's some people that they should have looked into closer. Um, and from our research, it's very clear that there's things people are not saying that you could probably get people to talk about. And, um, but no, they, didn't, they just want to say Dwayne's their guy. And they, they, they want to keep saying it to this day. And um,
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, if the family has got to be... I mean, if I was part of the family, I can't speak for them, but if I was part of the family <laughs> of the victim, I'd be so mad that his former colleagues right. aren't actually trying to get the guy who did it. Uh, so if you watch the show, it's crystal clear that Alfred didn't do it. Uh, so no. there's, there's and,
2: and knowing the guy, he doesn't... He, he, he could not have... And, and the ways in which the police try to still say that... There was a whole thing in the, in the story with the phone call. His alibi was that he was at his girlfriend's house and he made a phone call. And that's, that's always been the crux of his alibi. And the police to this day have concocted this bizarre story about how it was actually a three-way call and he had this mastermind scheme where he called his buddy who then connected it to the other place to make it look like he made the call. I mean, it's just like, if you know the guy, if you've met Alfred Dwayne Brown, he is not a criminal mastermind. So it's just, it's just, it just strains credulity in, in every possible way. Yeah, so to, to me,
0: in, in a lot of these cases, and, and in this one in particular, the misconduct of the prosecutor is what shocks the conscience. Yeah. So can yeah. you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, this, I, I mentioned the alibi. So basically what, what this prosecutor did, Dan Rizzo, he more or less threw Dwayne's alibi in jail until she was willing to change her story and lie under oath in the trial to be the basically star witness in the crux of the prosecution's case. So he took a woman who had no prior record. She was a young mother, you know, from a community that doesn't have a great relationship with the police to begin with, throws her in jail for six months until she's finally willing to change her story. You know, and she's there's these transcripts of the grand jury where she's just being badgered by the grand jury to basically... You know, you're not telling the truth, you're not telling the truth. And they, they say things to her like, uh, you know, you're not even going to be able to get a job flipping hamburgers at the McDonald's, you know, just, just terrible, terrible things. When you should think that a grand jury process, at least, I mean, people make the joke about a grand jury that it'll indict a ham sandwich, but at least it will do that within the realm of truth. This was just full on blatant witness badgering. And for a long time, it worked. They got yeah. to go to trial and, and lie, you know? And was we got her any- finally got her in the show. She's the first time she's spoken out about this ever for the for this show, and um, she was on fire. She was just finally after fifteen years was just ready to let this all out, and um, it's a really great interview.
0: Um, yeah. And was there any cover up of evidence that, that the prosecutor knew about?
2: I mean, it's there. There was. It's hard to know exactly who knew what when, um, but yes, there. Ultimately, the alibi was able to be proven by records that were found in a detective's garage who was involved in the case and he just miraculously stumbled upon this box of records. Um, the thing that we've never been able to figure out is why did he turn that piece of paper in after all those years and not just shred it? So there's different layers of, of uh, <laughs> convolution to this, but what's always clear is that the story that Dwayne told the day he was arrested is the truth of what happened. And, and which prosecutor knew what, when, it's hard to say, but they clearly suppressed this evidence. And there was an email found a decade later that showed that they discussed the evidence and it just miraculously disappeared from the server, only to be found a decade later in, in, in a box in a guy's garage. Hey, and wow. then none, of these, none of these people have been held to account whatsoever. That's the most infuriating thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, no, the powerful. I never held the account. I, I remember the grand jury of uh, the cop who shot Michael Brown in Ferguson. Exactly. Missouri. Yeah, instead of badgering the witnesses, the pro- so-called prosecutor in that case uh, wound up uh, helping the defense. He presented the defense's case, which right. never happens in a grand jury. Uh, yeah. But that's when uh, it, a cop is in front of the grand jury. When you have someone in the opposite situation, right. they badger and badger and badger until they get the lie that they're. Uh, yeah. look, uh, looking for. Uh, I mean, so what is it? Is the motivation just, like, advance my career if I put somebody on death row that's a notch in my belt? And so... I think
2: it- in this case specifically, to me, it seems that you know they want it so bad to have a, a perpetrator of this crime against one of their, their brothers, one of the other cops, that they were just willing to do whatever it took to put a face to that crime. And... Uh, Clearly, no one ever felt bad about it because no one's expected expressed any remorse whatsoever. Um, but it is a systematic thing that's happened across all these cases. And you see this. There's three in the, in the series. There's three that are about this prosecutorial misconduct. And it's just it's so prevalent because people don't have the means to fight against it. You know, and another another person in the case, you know, took a plea deal. It was his gun that was used in the crime. But he took the plea for thirty years because he knew that was his better opportunity. and And this is a bad guy who had a had a long record. So you just it just shows you how good good people who are doing the right thing get caught up in other people's lies and and corruption. and you know
0: you know it's not the, good.
2: Yeah, now the powerless
0: in this country, and usually it goes with lack of money as well, gets steamrolled so often. Yeah. But that's why shows like this are so important because now, finally, when you show the injustice, uh, people get pissed and they should. Yeah.
2: Right? And I think that we, sh- we, we lay it out in a way that's very simple. And I think people can just understand that no matter what side of the aisle you're on or what you, where you're from, like this is just, these injustices need to stop. And uh, hopefully we can raise awareness about that.
0: All right. The series is called The Innocence Files, and episode eight is Hidden Alibi. Uh, Andy Grief, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. And thank you for doing this.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yep. Stay safe.